Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. Taking a bite out of summer this weekend, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers, and a very happy Fourth of July weekend. Every Sunday, you'll find me here sharing my passion for food and wine and feeding your soul. And at ChefJamie.com this week, you'll find warm weather-inspired recipes and cocktails like my grilled blue cheese and bacon-stuffed mushrooms, strawberry banana muffins, and ooh, a coffee and cream granita. So check it out, www.ChefJamie.com. And find my daily culinary posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ChefJamieGwen. This is a true culinary exploration. I'm all about delectable dishes, exquisite gastronomic experiences, and living the best life. So if it's rich or savory or just downright delicious, you are going to hear about it here. And summer is heating up, so you know I love fun, fast summer bites And I love great grilled things. So when my husband told me about this wonderful article that he had just read about in the new Wine Spectator magazine, all about Tamales Bay, I grabbed my keys and I ran out to buy oysters this past week. All right, let me go back a bit. In the seaside village of Marshall, California, the oyster beds are prized and plentiful. And the article was all about the Hog Island Oyster Company. And it was really fantastic. He was right. But it reminded me of a great summer ritual. And so now here I sit with you in the radio studio and wherever you are on July 4th weekend, I want to wax poetic on the beauty that is a grilled oyster. So here are a few tips to start because there might be nothing better than slurping an oyster out of its shell with the smoky goodness that the grill imparts. And West Coast oysters are best when it comes to grilling. Now, the East Coast oysters, I love them too, but they're smaller and they tend to have a little bit more minerality. Now, West Coast oysters, they are plumper and creamier and it makes them even more desirable for the grill. So you always want to look for the bivalves that are West Coast originated when it comes to grilling oysters, and you want to look for deep cups so that you can preserve that prized liquor. Now, you always want to bring on the heat when you're grilling oysters. It's all about speed, by the way. The last thing that you want is an overcooked oyster that's gone rubbery. So high heat and an attention to detail will reap you great rewards when grilling oysters. So this is how you grill an oyster. You heat your grill until it's nice and hot, and you shuck as many oysters as you feel you can keep track of, because to avoid overcooking, it's really better to work in small batches when you're grilling oysters. Now, if you're new to shucking, take it slow, protect your hand with a glove, use an oyster shucker, of course, and you can check out chefjamie.com for instructions on how to shuck an oyster. You discard the top shell, the flatter shell, and then you leave the oyster in its bottom bowl-like shell. 
and you add a tablespoon of butter to each raw oyster. Now, I like a compound butter made with garlic and herbs, uh, but it's up to you. And a chef's note, by the way, you can always gild the lily by adding grated Romano or Parmesan cheese like they do in New Orleans. That makes the ultimate oyster, in my opinion. Then you place the oysters on the grill and you cook them for about three to four minutes. You close the grill, by the way. And three to four minutes later, you open up the grill and you should see some caramelization in the butter around the edges of the oyster. Now, this is the time when you could add more cheese or additional flavor, but you do want to, I believe, be minimal in that you want the flavor of the oyster to come out. And if it isn't overcooked, you get this wonderful texture and flavor combination that is out of this world. Now, serve your grilled oysters immediately, as soon as they're cool enough to pop in your mouth, and you want to have plenty of crusty bread on hand to mop up the leftover butter. Now, here's uh, an additional chef's tip. You can actually grill oysters whole. And this is a great tool for those that aren't shuck masters. If you love grilled oysters and you don't want to shuck them, you lay the oysters on the grill with their bottom shell down, the bowl-like side down, of course, and you close the lid of the grill and you check them about every 60 seconds. And as soon as you see the top shell loosen, because the heat from the grill actually forces the oyster open, you remove the oysters from the grill, you pry off the top shell, and you eat, of course. Or if you want a shortcut, you could grill the oysters in their shells until the top shells loosen. You could pry off the tops, then fill them with the butter and grill the oysters accordingly. So if you're not running out to your fishmonger right now to buy some oysters, I'm not sure why, they sound so good, right? But I would love to know how your grilled oysters do turn out. So please email me anytime at jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, moving on. I'm really excited to share with you this new feature. I'm starting a new feature at the beginning of every show, every Sunday, to keep you in the know on current food topics. And I thought I would call it Three Things Foodies Need to Know This Week. I want you to be up on the trends. And so here is this week's food news. Did you know that Nestle chocolate bars are getting a makeover? Starting this summer, everyone's favorite baby Ruth and Butterfinger will no longer have any artificial flavors and colors. That's pretty great, right? So the iconic orange color of your favorite Butterfinger will now come from Anato seeds instead of red number 40 and yellow number 5. Next, Gardeners, rejoice because you're in the know. A hybrid plant has been developed in the UK and it combines Americans' favorite French fries and ketchup. And it's called just that, the ketchup and fries plant. You got to love it, right? Cherry tomatoes will grow up top, potatoes will grow in the soil, and all will be well in the world. (laughs) Keep an eye out for it in your local plant store. Personally, I can't wait. And lastly, to keep you in the foodie know, everyone thought that New York water from the tap tasted great, right? Well, I believe it does. Well, water industry experts named Hamilton, Ohio, the best tasting tap water in the country just last week. 
fascinating stuff, right? So now you're in the know, and that is this week's food news. There's much more coming up. Do not touch your dial because there is so much delicious conversation coming up. Gastronomic inspiration, by the way, and always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. But coming up next, Adam Sachs is stopping by. He is the editor-in-chief and a gentleman I am proud to call my friend, sharing a sizzling summer straight from the pages of the new Savour magazine. Also, Tony Abu Ghanem is sitting down to dish. He is the modern mixologist, and he is praising Pisco. Wait till he mixes up a cocktail for you. And Laura Vanderkam is here. She's the author of I Know How She Does It. And because we feed your soul on this show, I'm all about food and wine. As you know, I'm about living the best life. I love a little travel and tech thrown in. And who doesn't love some tips on time management? Stay tuned. It's a full hour of serious inspiration, and I'm glad to have you here. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, sharing a true culinary exploration every Sunday in your radio. So the summer issue of Savour Magazine has just released, and oh, that does excite me, and it is chock full of glorious new ideas and inspiration and recipes. And since I like to share, and they like to share, well, you can call us givers, editor-in-chief Adam Sachs is back. Savour Magazine, the culinary publication for serious foodies, of which everyone knows I am a huge fan, is all about grilling in America in their current issue. And aside from the familiar rituals of outdoor cooking, they're sharing some really new, insightful ways to grill a strawberry, create smoky flavor, and put a gargantuan cut of meat on that backyard table cooked to perfection. So Adam Sachs is here. Adam, I'm glad to have you back. Glad to be back. Thanks. Of course. Okay. Um, let's start with the most important, please. Could you grill us a strawberry? Yes. It's a, I guess the title <laughs> is a, a wee bit misleading. You want to start with more than one strawberry, yes. if at all possible. <laughs> Although it will be wonderful for one, if you're you know trying to slim down this summer, saving room for that giant steak you mentioned. Yeah, the gargantuan um, cut of meat. <laughs> exactly, that one. Love it. Uh, no, so stra- grilling strawberries is something that I certainly don't you know, pretend to have invented, but it's something that I've been doing and, and, and really enjoying. Um, there's something about strawberries when you put them on a very low uh, wood or charcoal fire or a combination of, of wood and charcoal and just let them don't get, you know, big sear marks. You don't want to grill them very hard and have them raw inside. You want to sort of let them cook slowly and really get a, soak up a lot of the smoke and they kind of transform. There's something really magical about them. They get plump and dark and the taste is just uh, much deeper than you're expecting from a strawberry. I thought it was so interesting because when I started reading your editor's note, I wondered if I was going to come across the foil packet word or oh, the no. line a sheet with aluminum foil or uh, put a small cookie sheet on your grill grates. But there's none you of that. somehow. Uh, yeah. Yes. Gr- uh, no, this is, you have to be brave. Put the strawberries right on the grates. Uh, again, you don't want you know you don't want a, uh, a leaping flame 
singeing your your strawberries and you don't want it probably is not going to work unfortunately for our friends who are using uh gas or electric grills uh you just want a really low uh flame with a little trickle of smoke and mm. something that will just sort of slowly cook the strawberry and the strawberry sort of dehydrates a little bit right the the water evaporates and you get this sort of uh, intense, not sort of, this intense strawberry flavor. I guess so, yeah. I don't know. I don't pretend to know the science of it, but they, the, the skin gets a little taut and they, yes. they and the insides sort of plump up mm. and there's just something sort of deeper and, and maybe more berry-like, if that makes any sense. Yes, it uh, does. Fr- from the strawberry. It does. I love the inspired thought and idea. And so I know that everyone will be duplicating your addiction I should say. Um, I Let loved... me know what you think. Okay, definitely so. I loved your prose on the lovely little island that is Lummy, right? Rhymes with tummy. Rhymes with tummy, yeah. I-, I wanted just to know, the experience looked very awesome. I wanted to know just how good Chef Blaine's food was. It was really, really, really good, really which was good. to me a huge uh, pleasure and also, frankly, a relief because I had met him several times and I uh assigned myself the you know the plum job of going out to Lummy Island which uh, for those of you who don't know is a bucolic beautiful little island part of the San Juan Islands uh off of uh, the northwestern coast of uh the state of Washington uh, it's, it's up from Seattle or down from Vancouver depending on which way you arrive and you, right. you take a ferry from uh, the little town of, of Bellingham, Washington. And I was excited to go there and see Blaine, who I'd met a couple times. And uh, and then I was just so relieved that the food was every bit as good as I had hoped. It was really, really one of those, you know, great meals of, of the year. It was it, It's a wonderful place. There's something extraordinary about his story. Coming off a three-year stint at Noma in Copenhagen, as you speak about, moving back to his home state, and then taking over an inn that what is seven or nine rooms and making the restaurant now a, a almost worldwide, if not, you know, very nationally known uh, gastronomic in the know sighting, right? I mean, it's on the radar. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to people who are, you know, put together the the 50 best lists or the you talk to chefs. I mean, I was um, very pleased to see that his old boss, Rene Redzepi from Noma mm-hmm. in Copenhagen, uh, tweeted the story and said if there's one restaurant in the world he wants to go to, it's uh, Willow's Inn on tiny little Lummy Island. So, mm-hmm. yeah, people who are who are in the know ha- have been, you know, mm-hmm. put it on their list. And, again, it's, it was just a real pleasure to be there and, and a real uh, relief to find that it's every bit as good as, uh, mm-hmm. as the you know, rumor. I hope you tweeted back, I was there. <laughs> yeah, he, he knew. <laughs> he knew. He knew. Um, well, the, the prose are, are really beautifully written, and I, I love the recipes themselves. I mean, just so absolutely indigenous ingredients inherent to where you have a sense of place. I can only imagine how it tasted. I really can't. Yeah, and the food that he did for, the recipes he did for us, are are more streamlined and and more basic and more and less dependent on you know on really local on ingredients from there the re- the food he does uh, for the restaurant is a bit more you know high end and and labor intensive um mm-hmm. but it's still very simple straightforward food and it's really really beautiful to look at and and to mm. eat and very unfussy too which i think is 
part of its charms. Yeah, definitely. He seemed very real, and I liked that. Uh, yeah, he's a he's a he's a real and a and a and a nice guy. Uh, as far as real is concerned, and by the way, if you just tuned in, you're really late because Adam Sachs is here, the editor in chief of Savor Magazine, and I love when Adam stops by. He's dishing on the new Savor release, the June July issue to get grilling America, um, and. I mentioned real, Adam, and I love pure and real, and I appreciate, you know, the artisanal approach, but there's something to be said for a shortcut. And I think page 20 of the new magazine issue is pretty darn brilliant, because if I could make DIY liquid smoke so easily, I would not have bought that expensive bottle of smoked olive oil. <laughs> and, and misplaced it probably. From exactly. One and other. left it in the back. for right. something. And then can't find it. And left it in the back of the pantry, right. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, even, even like you say, even purists need to fake it sometimes. So yes. we have a a uh, a recipe for a kind of quote-unquote liquid smoke that you can make your, yourself by using a combination of smoked sea salt, which is pretty easy to come by, mm-hmm. uh, vodka, which you're probably, you know, sipping while you're cooking anyway, and... Uh, Add it to uh, some olive oil, and um, and it gets that. It just allows that smoky flavor from the salt to open up and uh, imbue its smokiness to the uh, to the oil. And it's a, it's a kind of ingenious little trick. Oh, absolutely fabulous! And I'm grateful you shared it. Uh, we have a, a new feature, uh, in fact, where we are highlighting the best of a Savor magazine ingenious culinary. Epiphany posted at chefjamie.com and the Savour Magazine smoke flavored oil is there. So check it out with a direct link, of course, to savour.com. And then last but not least, um, leave us with this. I thought it was most interesting at the um, back toward the end of the magazine. There's always a feature from your test kitchen. And it always feels to me like a bunch of mad geeky, fabulous, foodie scientists got together and went, what color can we do today? And and they did it brilliantly because um, there is something to be said for food dye and how we're getting away from additives, preservatives, and colorings. Um, but this idea of beet powder, pretty brilliant. Yeah, this is a fun one. And it, the picture for those of you uh, listening to this on the radio, not following at home on the Savour, in your issue of Savour, right. is this lovely sort of uh, pastel kind of Roscoe-esque yes. uh, scene, but it's made out of um, uh, buttercream frosting that's been colored with varying degrees of beet powder. And this was, uh, the, by the way, the, the test kitchen uh, will love that description of them. I think that that sums it up pretty well. But um, the beet powder, is, uh, we, we came across it uh, in a completely different way. It had nothing to do with cake. We were testing some recipes for uh, the barbecue story with Chris Shepard, who's a great chef from Underbelly yes. in Houston, mm-hmm. and uh, he's using dried beets to color his uh, char siu chicken instead of uh, red dye. Food coloring, And sure. so the, the geniuses in the test kitchen were playing around with it and thought, you know, this is a pretty cool way to, to give an interesting pink and red color to things, and what else could we do with it? And so, frosting. Yes, and, and you taught us how, too. Just from, you know, fresh, raw, peeled beets... Uh, with a silpat mat and a low oven or a pilot light, I would think, uh, or a dehydrator, uh, you have what is beet powder, and you know everyone listening wants to make it. Oh, <laughs> Some I can't beets wait! And a little, uh, a little patience. Yes, and a little patience, which we could all use a little more of. 
don't you think? Um, The wide and wonderful world of recipes and cooking, wine, culinary arts, and instruction, and more can be found in Savour Magazine. And the summer issue is on newsstands now. He is editor-in-chief Adam Sachs, and it is once again a great issue. Um, Very glad to have you as a, a constant contributor on this show. Proud, in fact, Adam, and I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks. Anytime. Great Thank to talk you. to you. Appreciate it. Good to talk with you again soon. You'll find the best of Savour posted at chefjamie.com with a feature from their new summer release. And be sure to grab your copy on newsstands now. There is more inspiring gastronomic insight. Well, hopefully so. That's my goal right after the break. Stay tuned, please. Don't touch your dial. Cheers to you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. We're having a Pisco party today, so grab your glass because you're invited. Our resident mixologist, Tony Abuganum, is back, and this time to dish on the revived trend of the Pisco Sour. Perfect for summer celebrations, right? Tony is widely regarded as a pioneer and leader in the bar world. He is the author of The Modern Mixologist and Vodka Distilled, both award-winning books, and you've seen him win three Iron Chef competitions on the Food Network. He's taking us on a cocktail journey once again today, an intensive, I like to call it, to arm you with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spirits. So welcome back, Tony. How are you? Hey, Jamie. I am great. Thank (laughs) you. Yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you as well. And very excited to talk about the language of Pisco with you because I've seen a ton of buzz on Pisco and because I think it's a really interesting story. I did a little bit of homework, so I was prepared to at least sound intelligent and educated while you educate us. Um, But there are two countries in South America that actually lay claim to this homegrown spirit, and it is experiencing a a resurgence in popularity, right? I would say that it is. We haven't really celebrated Pisco uh, in this country uh, since prior to Prohibition, when it was a real, Peruvian Pisco was a big category in San Francisco, of all places. Okay, so you mentioned Peruvian Pisco, but there, there's a challenger, essentially. There is, <laughs> yeah. There's, there are two countries, as you mentioned, that claim uh, Pisco as their own. Uh, Chile is the other, uh, and um, very different in style, different grape varietals, the fact that their production is so different. And I was just in Peru, so I'm very familiar with Peruvian Pisco and kind of where I thought we would go because uh, there was so much to explore just in Peru itself. Okay, so with all due respect to the Chilean Pisco, we are focusing on Peruvian Pisco. Tell us a, a little bit about its roots, please. Well, again, um, a great distillant. So it is a brandy, but in Peru, they cannot age the Pisco. It is distilled to proof, so there's nothing added during the distillation process. They can't even add water to bring the proof down. So it mm. truly is uh, a pure spirit and one that celebrates 
both aromatic and non-aromatic grapes. So there are eight different grape varietals that can make Pisco uh, in five different regions. When I was there, we, we started in Lima and also uh, visited Ica. So didn't uh, get to all five regions, but uh, I got a great, uh, better, I should say, understanding of this beautiful And I think that's the beauty of it, though, that when you get to know or understand or have some background on the culture, on what what it takes to, you know, get the the spirit into the bottle. I felt that way um, when I went to Crush in Napa many years ago. And I think we talked about this once before. But after you watch the entire process, you have this newfound respect. As much as we all, you know, would like a, a great value bottle of wine, I think that, you know, when you know what goes into it, you're really willing and considerate of the fact that it's worth so much more. And, and the same thing with the culture, as you're talking about. I thought it was interesting um, because you sent me a tutorial. I'm cheating a little um, because I know you're talking about Pisco at Tales of the Cocktail coming up, right? Yes, I'm doing a uh, a, a panel discussion uh, on the called the Grape Escape. The so, Grape Escape. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, and again, it's to better understand. Um, like my dear friend Charlotte Voicey says, through greater knowledge comes deeper enjoyment and. Mm. Not to true. understand that there isn't just one Pisco. It would be like having one bottle of gin or one bottle of bourbon. Um, you have these not only eight different grape varietals, but you have virtually three different styles of Pisco. Um, the things that are the same, as I mentioned, nothing can be added. It's distilled to proof. It doesn't see any oak aging. It must be rested uh, for a minimum of three months. Those pertain to everything. But you have uh, pureos. Pearls, uh, which means that it is a pisco that is distilled from a single variety of grape. Okay. Um, this can be either an aromatic or a non-aromatic grape, although even the non-aromatic pisco grapes are very aromatic. Uh, and then achilado, which refers to a blend of different grapes. Okay. And then the third type is called Mosto Verde, which is basically they, they stop the fermentation before all the sugars have been eaten by the yeast. So you have a, a pisco with a, a, a ma- um, from a mash that has a higher sugar content. I was surprised when I read through your um, educator notes. I didn't know of or wasn't familiar with most of the eight grape varietals. And for those that aren't familiar with pisco, can you describe it for us? It's a, a high alcohol by volume uh, spirit made from grapes. But what can we expect um, on the nose, in the bouquet, when we smell it? And then what can we expect on the palate when we taste it? Well, uh, as we mentioned, you have both aromatic grapes, uh, such as Torrentel or Italia, uh, and then you have the non-aromatic grapes, and probably the, the best known is the Quimbrancha grape. Uh, that is one you'll probably see the most often. And then you see, uh, like I said, achilados, which are a blend of different grapes. Right. But each grape contributes a different characteristic to the final Pisco because uh, it really is all about the grape. It's a true celebration of the grape itself because nothing has been added, no flavors, nothing at all. It's just all coming from those individual grapes and the characteristics that they contribute. And the beautiful thing is, you, you know, Pisco is a brandy. I love drinking it just all on its own. It you doesn't do. need to be mixed into anything. We celebrate it in drinks like the Pisco Sour, which is a fabulous, 
fabulous drink when made well. But not only is the mixability incredible, but the enjoyment of each individual uh, style of Pisco on its own. And this is what I'm going to talk about at uh, Tales this year in July, is the different grape varietals and the different styles and why one bottle of Pisco on your back bar just isn't enough. Okay, because some of them are going to give you um, citrus on the nose and a little bit of peppery spice with caramel on the palate. Some are going to give you a, a beautiful pear on the nose, as you talk about, and jammy on the palate. So they really are very distinct and different. Tony, if you would please pause there. We want to shake up more cocktails with you, but we need to take a quick pause. More on the praise for Pisco right after this. We're back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, along with Tony Abu Ghanem, the modern mixologist, as we praise Pisco. You can drink them straight, as you said. You can make a Pisco sour, which I'd love if you would just give us the quick lowdown on a, a Tony Abu Ghanem quick Pisco sour. And then we've posted a Pisco punch as well, which we must discuss. So yummy. It, it really is. It is so wonderful because... All of those beautiful aromatics that you just talked about and the floral notes of the aromatic grapes um, that are just so wonderful, like drinking a well-made Pisco Sour, I, I, it's like drinking a flower. It really is. Like, you know, it's, you get that beautiful uh, mouthfeel from the egg white, and it's just, I have never made, Jamie, someone a Pisco Sour that they haven't just lit up and said, wow, what is this? This is delicious. Um, and yet we still struggle with it becoming a mainstream drink. And, uh, you know, we're seeing eggs now behind virtually any even decent uh, cocktail bar. So right. the egg white scares a little out. But my basic recipe, as most sour recipes are, two parts base spirit, okay. one part fresh squeezed lime juice, and one part simple syrup. And my simple syrup is always one part sugar, one part water. And then a heaping, uh, you know, a tablespoon of egg white. Shake that up really vigorously so you aerate the drink and you get the egg white to uh, emulsify. And then on top of that, just drop three drops of Angostura bitters. Just such a lovely, mm. lovely drink. It's a, and you mentioned summertime entertaining. Yes. Pisco lends itself. To summertime. To the beauty drink. of summer. Yeah, for sure. I cannot wait to make the Pisco Punch with the lime juice and the lemon juice and sliced lemon and uh, lime and pineapple. That sounds like a party in a pitcher, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you're invited. Will you come toast us, please? We'd love to have you. I would love, love, love <laughs> to come down and okay, drink Pisco Punch with you. That, that's the plan <laughs> then. And come back soon, please, Tony. Let's pick um, another uh, intensive because I think it's really wonderful to take um, the limited time we have but but really saturate our our minds and our palates with one single, whether it be trend or spirit or um, cocktail, so that we learn the most that we can about it. And I thank you very much for uh, the intensive on Pisco. Well, there's a plethora of wonderful things we can talk about, and yes. it's always such a pleasure being well, on your show. You. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll take a quick break and back in just a moment. 
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, feeding your soul this Sunday. Okay, we know the buzzwords, time management, work-life balance, how to get everything done. Are there really enough hours in the day? Well, what if balancing work and family is actually not as hard as it's made out to be? This best-selling author, journalist, and time management expert proves just that. And when I read her book, I felt enlightened to know that I could find better balance with her tips. And as a mother of four and a best-selling author, if she can do it, you can do it. The new book release from Laura Vanderkam is entitled, I Know How She Does It. And Laura is the author of What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, another wonderful read. It's um, a new study, in fact, that Laura did where she found some really interesting and surprising patterns in how you can spend 168 hours productively. That's, by the way, the amount of hours we each have in a week. And she is here to share her specific strategies to do it all. I'm glad to have you, Laura. Welcome and congrats on the new book. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay, uh, let's start at the beginning. Tell everyone about the Mosaic Project and the time log, which I kept turning the book to read hour after hour to see how productive, extraordinary women across the country make it happen. So I was interested in this idea of women who seem to have it all, what their lives really look like. So I collected a 1,001 days of time data from women who earned six figures and also had kids. I wanted to see hour by hour when they worked and when they slept, and I could analyze that and maybe add some data to this pile of what is mostly stories about how women combine work and life. And I think it was so interesting as I read through that sleep is an ever-present topic in your book. And mind you, these are um, time logs of women who have... Um, you know, wonderful careers and passionate hobbies and our um, mothers to children. But these rules of or tips and tricks and insight into time management really apply um, to men and women and um, sleep applies to all of us. So um, I was interested to read that we actually sleep more than we think we do, as you found. We do. Um, the problem with most sleep surveys is that they have a researcher call you up and ask you how much you sleep on a typical night. But it turns out there really aren't typical nights. And even if they were, people don't sort of average in weekends into their weekday you know, view of a, a typical night. And we have a tendency to remember our worst nights as typical. Um, that's just kind of human nature to view the negative as standing out more starkly than the positive. Uh, but when I had people in my study keep track of their time, so people with demanding careers and also had kids, uh, I found that people slept on average about 54 hours a week, which if you do the math with seven days in a week, comes out to just a little bit less than eight hours a day. So I found that to be a very heartening finding that on the whole, we are not as sleep deprived as we seem to think we are. Yeah, no doubt. And I thought it was wonderful, too, that you encourage all of us to take the time um, to take a vacation, seeing that it's summer season. Um, could you give us your best time management tips to sort of schedule these few months to the best of our ability? Well, partly it's about asking what you want to do with your time. Um, many of us assume that we are so busy that we don't have any time for fun, and I don't think that's the case. Uh, often if we put fun things in, we discover that there is space for them, and everything else will fill in around the edges. 
So make a list of the things that you want to do this summer, things that would make this summer feel like it was wonderful. Um, that can be vacations, but it can also be smaller stuff like eating dinner outside a certain number of days or enjoying a, a glass of wine on the porch at night or um, you know, going swimming someday after work. These are all things that would make life feel really cool and fun. Uh, and, and then once you know what this list is, when you have open time, you can put those things in instead of doing something that's less enjoyable, like just checking your email again. Right. And then I love the strategies um, to master the tiles, the mosaic tiles, right, for the time log um, toward the end of the book. And I like how you say use travel time. I think there's a lot of really good tips for all of us. Um, I learned a lot about my own time management from your book, and I loved reading the stories. And I think um, that knowing how she does it applies to she's and he's and all of us. And so I congratulate you on um, new and wonderful insight and for um, trying, I know, to keep us all sane um, and successful and productive and fulfilled all at the same time. Well, thank you. I hope, yes. I hope your readers will, your listeners will enjoy it. Well, I loved reading it. So congratulations to you, Laura. She is Laura Vanderkam, the best-selling author of What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, All the Money in the World, 168 Hours, and Grind Hopping. Um, you know her as a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors and her contributions to Fast Company as well, and her Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Fortune articles too. Uh, you can learn more about her new book entitled I Know how she does it at lauravandercam.com and you can gain some really precious time management skills to make the best out of life and to feed your soul. Laura, it was a pleasure. I hope to talk to you again. Thank you so much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of Wisdom Feeding Your Soul. Every Sunday, I hope to inspire you to be a better cook, to live your best life. And if you're looking for the recipes heard on this show, I'm always serving up seconds for quick, easy, fun dishes at chefjamie.com. I hope you'll tune in every Sunday to be a culinary genius. And I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. I love delicious dishes, especially those with a trio of ingredients. So check this out. You can make the ultimate grilled chicken wings with just those wonderful wings, a little bit of olive oil, and a heavy dose of Old Bay. Yes, the seafood seasoning that we all love is delicious on chicken. So just toss the wings with olive oil to coat and a good generous dose of Old Bay and then grill uncovered on a good high heat barbecue until the wings are cooked through and all golden brown and delicious. About 15 to 20 minutes. I like to serve them with ranch or blue cheese for dipping. And oh, yes, you will be a culinary hero. Here's to a truly scrumptious July 4th weekend. I hope that I shared with you a moment of culinary nirvana. And I'll meet you here next Sunday when the inspiration continues. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening. And I hope you continue to eat well. Well.